John chapter 1, verse 6, there came a man sent from God. Now, I just want to use just those words. There came a man sent from God. Now, to actually put this into words has been a challenge because I've lived it. But like I said, I've never, I've never taught it from this angle. If you heard Sandra's message and teaching last week, then I will spring off of some of that. If you haven't heard it, I highly recommend that you pull it up from Facebook Live or the podcast and listen to it. But there the the word where there came a man sent, that word sent is derived from the word Sandra mentioned last week, apostello or something of that nature. Uh, it's all those words are twisted in the Greek and, and we twist them even more in the English. So uh, that's my Oklahoma tongue's best shot at that. But it's a common, it, when, you, when you do a real word study on this word, it's indicating a common, ordinary person that goes through a natural process, but at some point they begin to realize that the godly intent in their life is being accomplished. And there is in this word, as they would have heard it back when, when it was first written, when, when they first started using it in the New Testament, in the word, uh, the people would have understood that this was a person that was held apart by what seems to be their natural way, their nature. And it seems like that they've been put through a natural process. But as life plays out, it becomes apparent that there is a God something that has been at work all along. Now that's, that's something that I struggled with. And uh, I know that, that you understand something of... of what pastors do and I have in my life pastors I I have Doug Craigbaum that I look to as a pastor figure but I have the team that surrounds the work we do that is part of it and Dave and Beth Lemmer hopefully maybe February somewhere along there we can get them here you will love Dave Lemmer he's he's an amazing man but Dave visited my house as a pastoral representative recently and he sat there, and some people would say that he raked me over the coals. No, he blessed me. He began to talk to me about uh, things of, of how the past can hang on and cause you not to be all you, all you can be now. And as, as he left, he opened up a vein of something in my life where I began to go back and look at, at some of the things that honestly... I had been ashamed of them, and I, I still, if I were to go back and live in those things, I would still be ashamed of them, because I lived in a way that was not godly at all, and was very proud of that. Matter of fact, I celebrated the fact that I was ungodly. And because of that, I have almost always thought that God was giving me the difficult assignments, because to whom much is forgiven, much is required. That's my thinking. And I began to see that even though God did not inspire the, act, the actions, the activity of those days, He used those days to begin to build me even before I knew Him. He began to put things in me that would serve me well for what he had planned for me. He also, when, when God begins to call to one of these particular anointings of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, when he begins to call to that level, he calls you according to who you are. He, he looks at you and he analyzes what you can handle who you are, what you have become, and He calls you to Himself using the very best of you that life has developed. And as I began to realize that, it didn't make me proud, it made me humble. One thing is I realized that in among all of that nonsense, when I 
openly made fun of and mocked people that would try to win me to Jesus. When I knew just enough about the Bible to get you in trouble. If you came and talked to me about the Bible, I would twist you up so much. I've actually had people leave me crying. I'm not proud of that. Because they didn't know what to do. And I realized that I drug God through all of that because he had his hand on me, he had his eye on me, he had his presence. And in among all of that, there was still that God something that was at work. And I, I can't identify exactly what it was, but there was a God something that was at work. And I remember the scripture where one of the, one of the, he said to one of the prophets, from your mother's womb, I knew you. And I realized that's been true in my life. And I'm so glad that at the blood of Jesus, all that was cut off and broken and that I don't have to go back there and live anymore. But I can be begin to move ahead in what God has for me to do. Uh, it's a bit mis mystical and, and a lot humbling, and it's also a bit physical that when you begin to realize that God has been doing something all along, but it's very sobering to realize that Father was there allowing himself to be dragged through all of the muck because he had a plan and he had a love for me even then. It, it just messes with my mind. And then I was born again and I moved very quickly into ministry because by that time I was a leader. I had led people off deeply into sin. I had, I had led people in, in combat. I had led all kinds of things. And, and I was a leader. That's part of who I was by that time. And, and when I was first born again, there's something, something about that, that that I began to realize that God had accepted me. And even though I was a real mess God had accepted me and that he was drawing me to himself and I wanted to tell people about it now I was so rough at this time that the churches wouldn't have me I mean literally they wouldn't let me say anything because one of I talked to one to the guy that would have been considered my pastor at the time and told him I felt like God was calling me and he laughed and he, just, he really in a mocking way he just laughed and said, oh, a lot of young Christians feel that. It'll pass. And, and sent me out of his office. And so I went to the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was living outside of Tulsa, a little town named Chelsea, by the way. And I began to go to the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, you know, I used to haunt those streets, the ones that, that I went to. I, I went to where all the roughest life was and where, where people like me hung out and, and where, where all the fighting took place and the drinking and the drugging and all of that stuff took place. And I went back there and began to walk those streets telling people about Jesus. I didn't know much, but I told them what I knew. And I watched people get saved, delivered, and healed. And I mean literally saved, delivered, and healed. We would go to rock concerts and stand outside the rock concerts and preach salvation as they, let, as they let out. Everybody coming out high and drunk and we'd see people fall on their knees and ask God into their hearts and it changed their lives. We prayed for sick people coming out of there and saw them healed. We saw all kinds of things happening and I had been saved just for weeks, maybe months. There was a God something that was on me. And I'll tell you what, if you're saved at all, there's a God something on you, whether you recognize it or not. You just got to learn to cultivate that. Now, we literally won murderers. I could tell you lots of stories where one guy got out of jail. He was, he was in jail for um, assault. He got out of jail, found out his wife had been, had been seeing another man laid up on the side of the hill, borrowed a two forty three rifle from his, from his friend, laid up on the side of the hill, and when that guy walked out of the house, bam, blew him away that morning. I met him that night on the streets of Tulsa. He told me his story. He, he said, I know I'm going back to jail and, and because I had talked to him about salvation. And he said, I don't know how God feels about me. And I sat there and talked to him about salvation. And he genuinely got saved because I walked him then to the police station 
and stood outside and watched while he processed himself back through and turned himself in as a murderer. Why? Because of God. And that, that kind of thing happened over and over again, and this was before I'd even been saved for two years. Now, during this time, I knew where, somewhat where I was headed, and I began to go to Bible school by correspondence and to study still not being allowed to preach or teach. i tell you what, from, from the first time that I pastored a church, I had not filled an actual pulpit more than a handful of times. I, I don't know exactly how many, but certainly not more than ten times. But I preached on the streets. And, and when, when I knew that God was calling me into that kind of ministry, I began to look for places that needed pastors, and I, through, the, uh, through friendship, I've, I found a place called North Dakota that really had some churches that were empty for sometimes years at a time and they needed people like me and they put me in this place called Medina, North Dakota. Now they put me there because they didn't think anybody could do anything with that group of people. And I couldn't because I was preaching everything I knew every Sunday morning and it took about 20 minutes and then I'd study for another week and then preach it again, preach something else. And, and that's just the way it was. I was just trying to stay afloat. But before five years was over in that city, I was literally pastoring three quarters of the city. Why? God. There was a touch of God that was, that was on my life. And that church turned around and it's still doing well today. And it, it just simply, you know, I didn't know what to do, so I asked God. The first thing I, he told me, he said, dissolve the board. It was run by a deacon board. Well, I don't know anything, so I just go into a meeting and say, we're dissolving the board. <laughs> it's like whacking a hornet's nest with your fist. <laughs> but we dissolved the board. And that thing began to grow. And it be, the, the district told me, that now these are people that used to go, I want you to go after them. Remember, I didn't know anything. So I told them, no, I'm not going after them. They were trouble when they were here, and I'm not going after trouble. I'm going to go after these other people. And we went after them and built it. Why? Because I'm telling you, sinners need to know Jesus. And they need to hear it from somebody who understands that they were a sinner. And they, they also understand that just because they prayed a prayer doesn't make them a, an automatic perfect saint. It makes them one that is being changed as you go along, and people can identify with that. And to this day, I'm still being changed as I go along. Greatly changed. I, I feel like I've been significantly changed since last week. And Dave Limmer come in there messing around in my stuff. <laughs> Who does he think he is anyway? He thinks he's a pastoral representative to people like me, and I'm so thankful for him. Hallelujah. But... From the very beginning, I had a, by the way, this Medina, North Dakota, I think started about 1984. Isn't that about right, Leslie? I was seven, so. Yeah, it was a while back. And the re there's a desire in me that was born when I realized I really was born again, this desire was born on me. I felt like we could see it on earth as it is in heaven. I felt like Jesus didn't pray that prayer as a useless thing. And I, that became something that drove me. And we began to see things happen, and not because I knew how to make it happen. I still don't know how to make it happen. But because God would give you an inspiration, and you'd... With <clears throat> your knees having close fellowship one with the other, you'd give it a shot... Be in a place like a restaurant and God would call your attention to somebody. And my pastor at that time, Ben Tipton, had told me, he said, when, when you feel that, it's not to bless you. And it's not because you have wrong thoughts about that person. It's because God wants to do something. So I'd go in a restaurant and I'd see somebody, sometimes with, with breathing uh, apparatus on or whatever, and I'd know, oh man, I'm going to have to do it again. And with both knees knocking, go over and just start talking to them and praying for them. Miracles in restaurants. Seeing people laid out over their plates. 
and reassuring their mates, hey, it'll be all right. <laughs> but, but you don't understand, they, they've got advanced emphysema, it'll be all right, it'll it come to in a little bit. God was touching. And all of this began to happen just, I mean, incredibly quickly. And then about 1991, by this time, we had developed a tremendous worship team on the reservation in, in Belcourt, North Dakota. And we were, those guys and me were traveling literally all over North Dakota doing special services and men's retreats and all kinds of things. We would go in on Friday night and we would stay through Saturday afternoon, drive all the way back across North Dakota, do what was necessary in the service on Sunday morning, and the touch of God was there. 1991, Dickinson, North Dakota. I was minding my own business in this service too. But we were there to do a men's retreat. But word had gotten around that things were happening and the ladies, everybody showed up. The pastor's name was Jim Hessler. He's still there. I guess he's close to 80 years old. He's still pastoring there. <coughs> Jim Hessler was about as denominational as a denominational man gets. He was on the district board. I mean, he, he was, Paul would have said this, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And it's not that he was a bad man, he's a good man. He's still a good man. But the worship team was doing their thing and tremendous things happening during worship. And Jim calls me out. I was sitting down as I normally do. He was sitting up in the throne room like they normally do. And, and he, he called me up. platform was about this high, but it just had some steps coming up like this, and this was a drop-off. And he said, I've never done this before, and I'm not sure what I'm doing. And what he was doing was he began to prophesy. But we were in a group that did not believe that there were prophets and apostles. How many knows that just because I don't believe it doesn't mean it's not so? <laughs> Some people say they don't believe there's a God. Oops. <laughs> Going to be trouble when you die. <laughs> but we were part of a group like that that we celebrated evangelist pastors and not so much teachers, but evangelists and pastors. And we kind of allowed the district office to serve the place as apostles and prophets that apostles and prophets would take. And by the way, that message got me in trouble back then, but it ain't going to get me in trouble now. Jim got up, called me to the front, and he said, I don't know what I'm saying, but God has put this in my heart, and I've got to say it. And he began to prophesy, you are an apostle called by God. And when he said that, the power of God hit me, and I wasn't any shorter then than I am now. As a matter of fact, I was a little taller because gravity has taken its toll. And I kind of like rocked back on my heels and then bam, I hit the floor. Worried him. He didn't know what to think because I hit so hard. And it really worried him when I didn't move a muscle for about 40 minutes. And now, those of you that know me would, would know this. You don't get any courtesy drops out of me. It just doesn't happen. I had a guy who thought he had all the power in the world that tried to push me down one time. And I grabbed his wrist and pushed him backwards and said, don't do that. And if God does it, fine, but you don't do it. So that's my attitude toward it. Now, this thing was about this high, and when I finally started coming to myself, <clears throat> I tried to get up. The lower half of my body wouldn't work. Jim Hessler was really worried now. He thought I maybe I broke my back when I fell. So I pulled myself over to the edge of the 
platform and swung my legs over and thought I'd get up that way and went right over on my face and was down again for a while. You say some of us are hard-headed enough that God's got to do some things to convince us. From that time on, what had already been at work in me rapidly accelerated. And I began to bring the presence of God into something that I knew was a word from Him. And backing up just a little bit after, the, after this, well, no, I'm not backing up really. At 1992, I was in my bedroom, my wife asleep in bed next to me. And I was praying, I, because understand, all this time I was so aware that God was doing something, because some things were happening that I couldn't orchestrate because I didn't know anything about them. And just like the whole bed started to vibrate, my wife just sleeping away over here, never disturbed. And the bedroom door opened, and I saw a manifestation of either the angel of the Lord or the Lord himself, I won't say what, came over and sat out on the bed beside me and took both of my hands. And now the bed wasn't vibrating, I was vibrating. You say, I don't believe in that stuff. I'm sorry, because it's very real when it happens. And I've never been the same since that night, but he began to just talk to me like I'm talking to you. And he said, I am calling you to do these things. And he said, it's going to cost you, and I want you to count the cost over the next few days and tell me whether you're willing to pay the price. And he began to tell me, he said, it'll cost you friends. I didn't understand that because I thought they were friends. I really thought they were. I thought he was wrong on that one. You know, I might as well be honest. I thought, well, my friends will stick with me. And you know what? The real ones did. Still, still friends with Damon after those years. <laughs> he said, it'll cost you your ordination. I was ordained in a denomination at that time. It'll cost you your reputation in a lot of areas. And I immediately said, I don't need to think about it. I'll accept it. And I've never, ever operated in anointing more powerful up to that time and that I've continued to operate in since then. A lot of times, for pastoral purposes, we really do pull it back because God is saying, pull it back. But when we get in places where we're handling things that the devil has put together and things where people need to be convinced, I'm telling you there's something that can be turned loose that would set your teeth on edge. A little bit of it happening here right now, isn't it? The thing of it is, when I got up from there over the course of the next, I'm wobbling now, over the course of the next couple years, the people that I thought were friends, I found out they were friends of the denomination. They weren't going to risk their position to be my friend. God challenged me about my ordination, and he said, I don't want you to let them take it. I want you to resign it and turn it in. They wouldn't accept it. And so I'm still ordained with that group, although I never do anything with them because they wouldn't accept my, organ, ordin, ordin, my resignation and my ordination. And then I preached that message <laughs> about the apostles and prophets. And how that if you, try, if you try to operate without them, and there will be more next week that I'll talk about that, that there's many things you can't do. And that message caused them to try to take legal action, but because they had forgotten to receive my ordination, they couldn't take legal action. Oh, yeah, my resignation. So they listed me with the adulterers in the, on the thing and put the notation underneath that Damon and I were no longer welcome in the state of North Dakota. They didn't say not in the church. You're no longer welcome in the state of North Dakota. Why? Because we responded to a call. And I'm talking about me. I responded to a call. Just recently, they have personally apologized to us within the last three years. 
they still won't publicly apologize, but they personally apologized. From that point on, things began to happen at a very, very rapid rate. The very district that didn't like me asked me to go into some places and take a look at those churches and, and tell the pastors what could be done to set things in order. And I would go, and inevitably, the first thing I would say is, I'm going to have to dissolve that board. <laughs> <laughs> and they let it happen because it had been so successful. But more often than not, it would be individual pastors that somehow they would find out and we would have relationship and they'd say, would you come and take a look? The call of the apostle. Hear me. The call of the apostle was developing. Now, I struggled to see myself as Father was seeing me. I mean, it's just been the last few years that I was willing to stand up and admit it, you know, to say, yeah, that's who I am. Because I didn't want to talk about it. I could see it happening, but, man, I've seen all those other things around where guys were calling themselves apostles, and, man, they were causing a lot of trouble. They, they, they were immature. They weren't doing things that helped the church. They were hindering the church, and I just didn't want to be grouped with them. But God began to talk to me. He said, I'm not asking you to be grouped with them. I'm asking you to accept what I put on you. And so I want to take you through, and this is where Addie and Anna, I think you guys might, might identify here. But I want to go in and look at Paul in particular because the way I got through this is going back and studying the life of Jesus and the life of Paul. Now, when Paul first started down this road in A.D. 50, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians during that year. And if you'll notice, when he started out those letters, he just said, Paul. This is Paul. I'm writing to you. I could identify with that. And by A.D. 51, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And that one, he started Paul, called to be an apostle. You know, he's, he's getting it a little bit now. He, he's willing to identify. And I, I've been through that phase as well. A.D. 55, he wrote Galatians, Ephesians, and 2 Corinthians. And he said it right out. He said, Paul, an apostle. Not the apostle Paul, but Paul, an apostle. In other words, I've got this work that God has cut out for me. And I've got to realize that it's God and I've got to accept it. And if he thinks I can do it, I'm going to do it. He's aware of his calling and he's declaring that there's an empowerment from God. And he's been four or five years in the making here. Then AD 56, letter to the Romans, he, he puts it this way, Paul called to be an apostle. Now I want you to hear again his struggle here because he's in jail now. Things are not working out quite like he thought it would work out on the trail of the apostle. He's in jail. And he said, I'm, I'm called to be an apostle. I'm not sure how I'm doing with this. It just doesn't seem like this is the way it's going to be. But one thing is for certain, I'm irrevocably tied to Christ. I'm, an, I'm called to be this, and I'm going to keep identifying as much as I can, even though in the natural it don't look all that good. Then A.D. 61, five years later, he writes, Paul, a bondservant, the letter to the Philippians. You know, by this point, there's been so much happening in Paul's life, and if you'll do a life study of Paul, you'll see all the things that happened. But he still has some uncertainty about his ability to fulfill that spot as an apostle but one thing he knows is by his own choice, he's a servant of Christ. And as he can hear God, he's going to respond to that. Folks, that, that probably goes across all of the callings. I don't know all of the manifestations of the gift. It probably goes across it. But I know for sure, for me, that's who I am. If I can identify that it's Christ, we're going to do that thing. And part of that was built into me back when I was very young. Thank God he's given me a wife that is willing to go along with me and go through it with me. Previous to that, with Leslie's mother, she wasn't able to travel like I traveled. But this woman, a lot of times in a wheelchair, in so much pain that she could hardly stand, and yet she would tell me, you go. 
You go. You fulfill what God has put in your life. You do this because it's what we do. And, you know, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I will go into some detail. What happens is God puts a love in your heart for people. Paul said, you're written on my heart. And it's not just a local body, but it's a regional thing. God has put a region here on my heart. He's put a nation of people on my heart, two or three nations. He's put a world on my heart. And I know that if we develop what God's plan is, if we develop God's church, if we develop God's people around the countryside, we can fill the world with the glory of God. In my view, when I look at what God is doing, I don't see individual people. I just don't see them. And don't get offended at that. That's not who I am. It's like, it's like a rancher when he's looking out over the herds. He's not seeing the individual animals. He's just seeing the next step to get that spread and to get it developed and to get it moving. Now, there's times when I know that I have to step into the pastoral role and, and I pull back in there. It's always hard for me. It really is always difficult for me. But I pull back in. We'll talk more about that, that next week. But there, there came a time we'd been working. Chelsea had been working in Mexico a lot longer than me. I'd been working in it for several years by this time. And a lot of the churches that were supporting works in Mexico diverted their funds somewhere else. And we had long-term relationships down there. We had to make a cold and conscious decision whether we would allow ourselves to be diverted or whether we would do what God had called us to do. And we made the decision, we're going to continue to go. We knew that it would cost us, not just financially, Physically, Yes, you can make all of the positive statements you want to in the world, but when you're downtown somewhere in Mexico and you've got only the money to get to the church you're going to and you know it's a poor church, you don't know how you're going to get back, all the positive confession in the world is not going to change that. And I'll tell you what, Mexico's a scary place to be white and broke. <laughs> but we have a father. And he got us through. Thankfully, some people like you helped to get us through many times. You guys have, have bailed us out. And some people might have thought you were sending an offering so that Chelsea and I could go out to eat. No, they're trying to get us off a street corner somewhere because we're gone, gone for the gospel. Just, just getting by. We knew it would be that way because the support system was gone. But we also knew that there was a work to be fulfilled. And I'll tell you what's a pleasure now is I look at Facebook and I see some of these guys, like, for instance, Honas. I started working with him when he was 18. You probably started working with him when he was just a kid. Yeah. Eight years old. And now to watch him lead a church of more than 4,000 people effectively and building team and spreading it out and, and him not overworking, see him going places with his family, see the miracles that are happening in that church, see the new salvation that are happening in that church. That's a blessing. I'm telling you, it would have never happened if somebody hadn't gone there and taught the principles of team. And also taught something more in the moving of the Spirit than just Shabbaba. <coughs> And because of that, it's a rolling, functioning thing. And to see the numerous churches down in the state of Guerrero that are happening simply because we believe some guys could be leaders. And we kept going down there and kept going down there and kept building it into them, kept building it into, it into them until they began to lead. And now they lead. They do it. We don't. And on and on it goes, over and over, along the border and in Mexico. But it's all because somebody realized that it's not all about feeling good. It's about following your master. And above all, if I don't feel like I'm filling that place of an apostle, the very best I can do is say, but I'm a bondservant of Christ, regardless of what happens. If I know that he has said, go, I'll go. And we'll see how it turns out. 
And as you can see, as, as we have been back here around three years, you've seen that it's a lot the same. Um, A.D. 64, Paul wrote 1 Timothy. He's starting to wind it up now. He's not quite there. And he writes without any reservation. He says, I'm Paul, an apostle. I'm not backing down. I'm not shaken. I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. A.D. 68, I think. Let me check. He wrote 2 Timothy, and this time he really is wrapping it up. He said, I'm Paul, an apostle. And he identified himself in that letter as Paul the aged, and even asked Timothy, said, when you come to visit me, could you bring a coat? I'm freezing in this cell. You know how that goes. And he said, I fought a good fight, but I finished my course, and I've kept the faith. And there's laid up for me an authority of right relationships. That's what that actually says. It's crown of righteousness. Somehow we're fascinated with crowns. Maybe it was because King James started the deal. But there's an authority of right relationships that I have that I'll operate off of until the end and then I'll still have that place because I've fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And folks, as the call of God develops on you, in you, and through you, you need to be able to look back and to be as honest with yourself as you'd be about somebody else and to realize, yeah, I haven't done it all exactly right because I didn't know how to. But I've kept the faith. And I've fought the fight. And I've contended earnestly for those things that God has for His people. Second Timothy again, Paul said, I'm already being poured out as a drink, drink offering. He was, he was saying, yeah, it's coming to an end, but it's nothing new because I'm already being poured out as a drink offering to my God. And I'm telling you, there's something when you give yourself wholly 100% to that which is in heaven and your whole goal is to bring it to earth and to be the expression of His body on earth there's something about it when you reach the end of days and you look and you say, God, it's been a good run. It's been a good run. And I've realized that some of my childhood dreams I've been able to play out. You think about this. I was a kid that I knew that we had native blood in us and quite a lot. And I was fascinated with the cowboy side and also fascinated with the Indian side. And I would go to the library and I'd, I'd check out books and I would read of how, how the Indian chiefs developed their warriors. And I would, I would do that. I would, I would go out in the woods and I would practice sitting still without moving for hours as a kid because there was a warrior spirit in me. You say, oh, that's, that's off. Well, Maybe. And then I, I remember I'd go out and mom would catch me and I'd get a spanking, but, well, more like a whooping. But I'd go out barefoot in the snow because that's one of the ways they trained. And I'd walk until my feet would hurt, couldn't stand it anymore. And then go back in and warm up. But I was becoming what was necessary, I thought, to be what I wanted to be. And oh, how God used that. Times of misery. Times of sleeping on a concrete mattress. Literally, some of the hotels in the mountains of Mexico has a slab of concrete that far off the ground. That's the mattress with a blanket. Sometimes not even that much. Living with the bugs and eating the bugs. Eating in kitchens where the chickens were running around under the table picking up the scraps, and you know what they left behind. Going places where the pigs were more well kept than the dogs because they ate the pigs. And I'm not saying anything to belittle any people, they're wonderful people living out their life. But the wonder of going in there and say, okay, now, Jesus, show me what you look like in this culture. I know you don't want to change the way they live at this moment, 
but how do you want to change them? And how can we facilitate that? Knowing that if you change them, yeah, their culture will change, but it might not, they might not ever not have chickens under the table. On and on it goes, wading across flooded rivers, driving across some flooded rivers, and just believing God. All, much of that was developed back in those years. And then the military got hold of me. And they, they started teaching me how to, how to control myself even more. You know, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And God has told me, don't apologize for having self-control. Self-discipline, don't apologize for that. Now, sometimes I might take it to new levels. I don't know. But I'm not worried about that either. And guess what? He's not either. Between he and I, we'll figure it out. Or we won't. And he'll be okay with whichever way it goes. Now I want you to see what Paul wrote in Romans 16. Start with verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Not his gospel. My gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifest by the scripture of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what's in that, those verses? Paul is saying, it's God that establishes you. But it's my gospel I'm preaching. It has become so much a part of me that you can't separate me from that gospel. I feel eternally secure, not because I'm a one that preaches the doctrine of eternal security, but because I've gone far enough with God that I can tell you I'm not turning back. I'm, it's my gospel now. It's not just His good news. It's my good news. And he developed all that through the course of life where, where I couldn't really identify what he was doing. But even as a four-year-old, I had some idea that there was something happening because they tell me that I, I used to pick up whatever I could pick up and, and I would use it for a microphone at four years old and, and try to preach. And later, in later years, I thought, that was ridiculous. No, God was developing something in me. And then he identified as to what it is. And I'm telling you that I'll die doing apostolic work. It's just the way it is. I don't know where or what. I don't care. But I know that I'm not turning back because I am completely convinced that he called me, prepared me, and sent me. And that's all contained in that word apostle. And I'm also convinced that that can never be limited to one local house. Not for me, it can't. I, I die when I try, and I mean that. I, I get so dead inside when I try. And he says, quit trying. You do what I've called you to do. You identify it and you pull it into service. You go other places and you identify what he's doing in the region. You pull them together and make it a regional outreach because that's the way the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. I've got no interest, and I have these opportunities regularly. I've got no interest in going into nations overseas and doing big crusades. Just recently I was asked to go to a place and, and they were guaranteeing that there would be at least 3,000 pastors there to minister to if I would just go to a place in Africa and show up. I don't know those people. They're not written in my heart. I don't know their leaders. I don't know how they operate. I don't know what they do. I'm not going there. But I'll go to a little church over in Quincy and help Jermaine out. I'll go to a little church in Columbia and help DeMarcus out. Why? Because I know them. I know their heart. I know what they're doing. And I know that eventually there will be a big work in the world. And there may be not huge in numbers there, but because of what they've done, there will be huge in numbers. You know, Paul Washington was here recently. That guy has sent out of a very small church in Monroe City, that leadership team has sent more than five couples out of that house 
to go pastor and minister somewhere else. Why? Because if, the, if these guys come to Paul and say, you know, God is calling us here. All right, go. We'll support you. We'll help you. But you go do what God has called you to do. Knowing that he's taking the talent out of his own house and sending it somewhere else and having faith that God will develop more talent in his house. Folks, it's the kingdom of God and it's the way it works. And I don't know if anybody else has gone through a process exactly like I went through, but I know that I can read Paul's process and I can identify with it. Because on my level, in my culture, I've been through those same contortions. And sometimes all you can do is say, I'm not sure if I'm doing this anything like right, but I know that I'm bound to him. And I know that I'm going to be ministering out of him. And when he says, say it, I'm going to say it. When he says, go, I'm going to go. When he says, do, I'm going to do it. If I make a mistake, he'll help me fix it. Because I have this love for him that's more than just a decision to love him. He's my friend. We've walked through some stuff. I'll give you one last illustration and then we'll close the message. I hate it when I hear people say that they can't do anything about something that they say the devil's doing. I hate that. Matter of fact, that's, it was God ultimately, but that's what got my attention about the reservations. I sat, I sat in a meeting where a guy got up and he said, most of the church thinks it's impossible to reach the native people. You can't go in these places because it's so dangerous. And I thought, oh yeah? tell me <laughs> and so we started going started seeing people saved went into some of the places where they say that a white man couldn't minister because they'd kill him well we did I'm part white we went there and the spirit of God ministered and actually my name is on the roll there now as a I forget what they call it but uh, they put me on the roll as an honorary Chippewa that's what they call it So we were down in Mexico, and on one trip, one of the pastors told me about a little nine-year-old girl that was having such demonic manifestations that they couldn't keep her in the house because she was dangerous, so they had chained her to a log outside and given her just a lean-to cover, and that's how she lived. And I listened to that, and I said, anybody prayed for her? No, it's dangerous. So I came back here and that thing just ate at me. So next trip I said, take me to her. You can stay up the trail, do whatever you want to do, but take me there. No, we can't do that. And they wouldn't. And God spoke to me and said, I can go there. I said, would you just go and set her free? Just, just go and set her free. I don't have to be involved in it. The next trip... I actually met the girl, and she was, what the Bible would say, clothed and in her right mind. Had the scars from the chains and some of the ways she'd cut herself, but just as calm and nice a little girl as you'll ever meet. Why? Because of my friendship with Jesus. It touched my heart. And because it touched my heart, it touched his heart. And he went and set her free. God is good. All the time. And you'll be amazed if you start walking with him in friendship, what he'll do because of that friendship. But you'll also be amazed at what you will do because of that friendship. You will risk the laughter, the mockery, and the anger of the American crowd so that you can do what he has asked, just to see what happens. Oh, I love what happens sometimes. Don't always love what happens, but... He don't get mad at me when I don't like what happened because he's my friend. He loves me and he doesn't hold my past against me and he celebrates me as a son in his house. And you know, everything else will be all right because that is good enough for me. Now, Father, I know that you're laying a call on some people's lives. And Lord, I think in particular these two young ladies that you singled out in my mind yesterday as I was praying about this. 
God, I pray that they'll not be able to get away from it, but there will be times when you visit them and show them their amazing worth in you. God, show them that their value is not in what the world sees, but that their value is in being daughters in the kingdom. God, set them apart. Set them apart. Set them apart. God, these things that they're, they're going through now, let them see that these things are forming them for what you will do with them in the days to come. God, you've told me over the past three years now that this next move of God will see a lot of young people rising into leadership. And that we as the older ones are supposed to be right along beside them, helping them and encouraging them and helping them get out of the trouble that they get in because they're young. You've showed me that. God calls these two girls to realize that they can be a part of that. It's up to them. And causes them, God, to have a hunger in their heart to know you. And God, I know if that happens, everything else will take care of itself. Because I remember your words to your disciples that Mark Drake made so clear yesterday. Jesus, looking at his disciples, said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Lord, I know that's true. If we love you, and it's not an issue of whether or not we're going to lead a life of sin. We're just not going to do it because we love you. God caused these girls to fall in love with you. You're able to do that. And Lord, I'm asking you to do it because of my relationship with you and because of their parents' relationship with you and their grandparents' relationship with you. Lord, kind of like Timothy, I just ask you to do it. Will you do this thing? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.